Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about our global macro outlook for 2019. I'm Brian Giuliano, part of the fixed income team here at Brandywine Global. And I'm Steve Smith, uh, portfolio manager for global fixed income. So, Steve, we've recently talked a lot about the theme of, of trading places for 2019, which is simply the notion that 2018, you saw an acceleration in U.S. growth while the rest of the world decelerated. And our thinking is that 2019, you're going to see the exact opposite. In essence, U.S. economic activity is set to slow while overseas growth stabilizes. And you could even see some countries overseas have their growth profiles uh, accelerate. So, so, Steve, walk us through this theme of trading places. Well, the theme of trading places would be the opposite of what in some ways happened last year. And so the way this thing sort of unfolded or did unfold was, uh, you know, it was all scruffed up and beat up after just uh, being flat out wrong on the whole idea that we were going to have a globalized, synchronized advance last year. And the, the linchpin that changed that in retrospect was the tariffs uh, on ZTE in the middle of April of last year turned the commodity currencies down. And I'm not going to go through that, but the rest of that is history. And so, as I said, being scruffed up or black and blue, thinking about where we go from here, uh, in the beginning of November, we finally started to see the lights. And the lights were that uh, we were going to have this idea, this idea of trading places that came up. Now, when you think about it, we were following, we've been following this data, economic data, like a hawk. And the synchronized global growth was, hold, was holding in place relatively well, looking at PMI order books. And in September, when the data came in, uh, I was really set back on my heels. I mean, the order books rolled over big time. When the order books roll over, you know the PMIs are going to roll over. And so the questions that we I had to come out when I saw my accounts was that, uh, well, Steve, things really look ugly now. But in looking ugly, they've gotten here. The, the, the stock market in EM peaked first. The currencies peaked on April 17th. The commodity market at the end of the second quarter, and then finally the U.S. stock market succumbed to this global slowdown. So the market's going to discount this trading places uh, in, in advance. And so what are we thinking about and what do we mean? Well, let's just take one big, big idea and this is what it really is about. Since December 16th of 2015, they got off to a slow start. We thought it was a mistake. The Fed has been raising interest rates now for three years. China this year has cut rates. We've raised rates 250 basis points. They have lowered rates 250 basis points. The trading idea is that these markets lead with a lag of uh, interest rates in the U.S. with a period of about 18 to 24 months, and in China, it's probably 9 to 12 months. And we think that we are at the precipice of the U.S. economy slowing from this, you know, three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half kind of rate down to a two-handle. And we think that the Chinese economy has now gone through a recession, just like they did in 2015, and are on their way of coming out. So the the Chinese this time around, you know, as opposed to a couple of years ago, 2015, 2016, right, Chinese policymakers really took a, a bazooka to the market right, in terms of fiscal monetary action that they took. 
This time, it seems like they've done a lot of a lot of smaller things. They've, they've cut taxes. They've increased infrastructure spending. Uh, they, they've decreased reserve requirement ratios for the banks. So they've done a lot of little things at the margin. So you're thinking that if you add all these little things up, it, it should be enough to, to, to bring their economy out of this funk? Yes. Uh, one of the things we have this big discussion about in the morning meetings is that, well, what's the lead time? And so every single time that the Chinese get aggressively cut rates, the lead time is about nine months to a year. And then you get into the whole argument. Are they doing enough? Is it the triple R? Does it actually work? Are they going to cut taxes? Are they going to do, do capbacks? How much infrastructure spending are they going to do? And people, you know, with a, a you know, go through this thing maniacally trying to add all of these things up. And a lot of people disagree, or they agree to disagree. I just look at it and say the one thing that's been consistent is the central bank's cutting rates a big, big time. They're reducing reserve requirements that somehow, within that time lag, the economy picks up. Now, we've done some of the work on this, and by our lights, we think they've added about 150 basis points to GDP, and the list is about, you know, two pages long of all these small things that they announce, you know, almost every single week. So we actually think that sometime here in the first half of this year, you're going to start seeing economic activity pick up in China, and it's going to be discounted by the equity market first, and the currency markets are going to anticipate it. And that's what we think is going to happen, and we think it's going to, we, we do need to have China play itself out for this to work. You brought up trade a few minutes ago. So, so you don't think trade policy over the past year, it hasn't just been exacerbating volatility. There are fundamental shifts going on right now because of these changes to trade policy. This has been a really, really big deal, Brian. Um, and I know we, we could cover uh, for, for you all, you, we could probably fill this room with all the editorials that have been written about it. But the the... The basic theme is, is that the Chinese have been given a pass. They get into the WTO. They had all these rules and regulations they were supposed to require. And the U.S., the Clinton administration, you know, all the way back, uh, the Reagan administration, they all believed that as the Chinese was doing their um, new form of capitalism, that uh, they were going to abide by the rules of the WTO. And we have just given them a pass you know, the espionage, the stealing of intellectual property, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, they, they've subsidized the paper and forest product industry by $27 billion, steel by $27 billion. I could get down this list. And in some ways, I really believe that it takes a bully to confront a bully. Uh, you know, Donald Trump finally decided to confront them. And I thought it might have been more benign in the beginning, but he basically has opened the light and opened a window on what the Chinese are doing. And we are now seeing it, not just the U.S. realizes this, the Europeans, we see that, uh, you know, the Australians and New Zealands aren't going to buy some of their, you know, you know, cell phone technology to build out G5. And so opening that has really changed the game. Uh, I've read where 31% of the corporations that have money invested or plant and equipment in China are thinking about, rather than making more investments in China, either the investments are going to be smaller, they may move their plant out of China. And so I really think that Donald Trump has hit the Chinese over the head with a two-by-four. He definitely has their attention, and you are seeing it in the numbers. The Chinese economy is really being impacted by what the U.S. is doing. And so I really think that um, trade has been a big, big deal. Trade has been a big, big deal in slowing the economy down. You look at CapEx. CapEx is going on ice 
because corporations love to be able to know, okay, what are going to be the tax rates? Are there going to be tariffs? Aren't there going to be tariffs? All these things that need, it's not that the corporation is going to come to halt in the way they do business, but they just put things on hold. And as all of you know, markets are driven by things that happen at the margin. And trade is a big deal. My bet is that the Chinese are going to move. And if manufacturing starts to make its way out of China, right, some of it probably comes back here to the U.S., but other emerging markets, particularly some of those Asian emerging markets, probably stand to benefit as well. For the work that we've done on it and other people have done, the, 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 actually this is really ironic because this was the worst performing uh, bond market and currency for about two months during the fourth quarter was Mexico. They're the number one beneficiary, Vietnam, Malaysia. We have uh, investments in those countries. And so the way I look at what's going on, and I've given speeches over this for two decades. So China, you know, so Apple, for instance, has all this intellectual capacity in the Silicon Valley, and they can espouse all these wonderful things they wanted the proletarian to do. They don't like this, they don't like that, and uh, blah, blah, blah. You could do the listening of stuff from global warming all the way down. But, you know, who's going to pay for it? They can obviously afford to pay for it. But where are there 700 and some odd thousand people working for Foxconn in China? So what's happened as we've opened this window? Well, it's just like when BMW put a plant in Alabama or, you plants, or all these plants down in North and South Carolina. Look at the, country, look at the uh, economic environment now versus two decades ago. So if Apple Denel puts a plant in Wisconsin, he put another one in Texas, you're going to build this 25 or 30-mile umbrella that's really going to help Joe Sixpack in the United States. And so I think what's going on right now is really going to be positive for global growth because it's not going to be just uh, and for productivity because productivity was all made in China. And it's now going to be redistributed around the world. And I think we are at the beginnings of that. And if you see it happening in America, you can imagine how it's going to throw through to the rest of the emerging markets and other countries that uh, have just been making investments in China. All right, Steve, let's shift gears and talk a little bit more about the U.S. Let's talk about uh, Fed policy specifically here. Um, you know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is down almost 70 basis points from its recent high a couple of months ago. Is this the U.S. bond market simply pricing in slower growth, lower inflation? Is there something more sinister going on? Sinister is an interesting word. Maybe it is something more sinister. Um, <clears throat> this is the trading places story. I mean... I could have an opinion or our listeners could have an opinion. What's the neutral rate for the Fed? And for those who don't know, because not everybody knows this, a neutral rate is would be at what interest rate is the economy going to grow at, say, 2% and have full employment, keep unemployment, you know, at, say, three with a three-handle, and it's non-inflationary. Now, the reason the Fed gets in trouble, it's not the first couple of rate increases. It's the last one that causes a recession. Powell, Bernanke, nobody knows what the neutral rate is any more than maybe I do or you do. And so Powell actually set this whole thing off when at the beginning of this year, just being honest, David and Francis thought the neutral rate in our shop was maybe between two and two and a half. I thought it was two and a half to three. And now I changed my mind. I think three might be a little high. And so for Powell to say all of a sudden the neutral rate might be three and a half, that is a really a dramatic statement to make. And in fact, I would say it's arrogant because nobody really knows. 
The only thing I would say, if the Fed was doing its work, you could say, with where we are now, you surely have slowed housing for the last nine months, and that probably should go into some of their economic models. So why is this really important? In my webcast in the first quarter of this year, I don't know why I mentioned the equity market, but I thought P.E. models would go down by 10%. So we'll just say from 19 to 17. Why? Because the Fed was going to raise rates four times, and with higher interest rates, the P.E. multiples should be lower. But as that transpired over nine or ten months, the equity market was okay. But when, when Powell came out and said three and a half might be low, the stock market decided to discount that in in a one-quarter period of time. And it took P.E. multiples down another 10% or more, and we ended up with P.E. multiples at around 15 and created all this chaos that we had in the market. And so what what's, we've been doing now is Powell and the Fed have been backing off of that, and they've just been doing it gradually. And uh, the last statement, they not only did they talk about the, the terminal rate, they, they actually even mentioned global trade. They mentioned all the things that we've been pointing out to that I think the Fed, since it's a reserve currency, is responsible not just for the, uh, the Phillips curve here in the U.S., but they do have a responsibility for global growth. So that question you just asked me, Brian, is really important. And for all I know, the reason we added duration and our domestic-only product put, went from one to ten years was really because we just thought, well, maybe market neutral, for all I know, could be 2%, not the Fed's thinking of 25 or 3%. And we're going to see that if they go on hold. And why don't they go, hold, go on hold and see – what the economy does in the next six months, how does it respond to the 250 basis point rise that they have already put into place? You know, to your last point, I thought Robert Kaplan made a, a, a good point last week where he basically said exactly that. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to increase uh, interest rates right now. And, and more broadly, look at the past 12 months. Look at the U.S. economy. Right? We've added 200,000 jobs a month on average to the U.S. economy. Uh, we have inflation that's falling now below the Fed's uh, uh, Fed's target rate, and middle-class America is finally starting to see real wage gains. So to Kaplan's point, you don't have to do anything right now if you're the Fed. Well, duh, that's what I always say. Why do you, <laughs> you want to keep the bottom of two or three quintiles of the working population in America, you know, out there just all the time depressed because their wages aren't going up? I think this is great. If we have CapEx in the U.S., Apple does its thing, other companies do its thing, Micron's building out another a big plant, uh, and you get productivity of two, two and a half percent. You get wages up running at three and a half or slightly more. Why isn't this good for the America and good for, uh, you, you know, good for the average person? And I think that's what uh, the last election was about. And from an economic standpoint, uh, these are the things that I see. As you said, I'm an economist, not a, uh, not a preacher, and I actually like what's been going on economically. And I don't think that the Fed's job should be to cut its kneecap off. I think they would have liked to see if it can actually actually run. In fact, the Fed has only spent one quarter since, two, since the Great Financial Repression with inflation above their target rate. So uh, what Kaplan said, I think you're right. I'm glad that you uh, summarized it that way, Brian. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, please don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions.